Hi there, Glocal Citizens. It's your host, Florence Adu, for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. Today, we see a rainy day in the streets of Brooklyn. Fortunately, it's not cold, but it's rainy, so I'm looking out at rainy skies. I think it's a bit of the winds from my guest's land, even though it's not raining there. I'm talking to Jason Page. He's based in London in the UK, and he is the co-founder of 40% London. He is the founder of the Southeast Salon, and he is the operations manager at the Migration Museum, as well as a project manager at Peckham Platform. That's a lot, but he'll talk more about all of those aspects of his personal and professional life. But just his background, he has over 20 years of experience producing events, raising funds, and organizing communities with not-for-profit organizations, charities, and youth in the United States and in England. And he's just like, I love Jason's public profile because he's always posting these interesting events and perspectives about things going on where he's now local, which is in London. So without any further description, I'll let Jason get to his own story. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Greetings from Southeast London. Thank you, Florence. Awesome. Let's get started. Tell us more about where you're from, where you're local, and what is your craft? Yes. I was born in Seattle, Washington, moved around the states quite a bit from Washington, from Seattle, Washington, Washington, D.C., to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Colorado, where my parents are from. Woo-woo. That's right. Denver, Colorado, five points. Big up. I'd like to acknowledge that my parents were born and raised in Colorado, so that's I consider that to be home, whereas other places I never either lived for very long or don't really have ties there now. So... It's not, Chattanooga is not necessarily a place that I return to, although I've got fond memories. Washington, D.C. is quite familiar, but I probably wouldn't recognize it today. And Seattle is a lovely town. I love Seattle, but uh, it's been a long time since I've lived there. And then after university, University of Colorado, I moved to Brooklyn, New York, where I met you, Florence, and lived there for 12 years before moving to London, England, landing in Southeast London, Broccoli, Lewisham, 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago. So that's where I live now. Wow, um, you almost got a dozen down. That's right. I got it. Well, I don't know if I'm going to move anytime soon, but yes, maybe yeah. I should just dip over to Amsterdam or something or, you know, some <laughs> other place just to get it. But yeah, as you said, I'm, I hold on a couple jobs, namely Peckham Platform as a project manager of a project called Create Civic Change, Tilting the Mirror, as well as um, serving as the operations manager at the Migration Museum in Lewisham. However, I have, in the last few years, I've developed a few other projects. Uh, One is Southeast Salon and one is 40% London. So very much trying to get these two projects off the ground where there is a need. Uh, You know, I think in answer to to the, what is my craft? I think at heart, I'm a connector. So one of the reasons why I started Southeast Salon is because everyone in my circle has always told me that I'm really good at connecting people and telling stories and making sure that people uh, are connected to resources where possible. So I started this platform a little over a year ago to bring people together 
in Southeast London at various different venues, bringing people together to promote creative entrepreneurs and providing a platform for people who need it, very much focused on this, this corner of, of the capital. And we had our fourth and best salon in February, right before the pandemic hit. And shortly and after, there were two individuals. In salon, that was in, it, in person. Right. These were in-person salons. These were in-person events. And shortly after that, two very important people to me, Norman Murray and Kimberly Knox, uh, almost simultaneously said you would be a fool not to continue this online. So we've continued those events online on a monthly basis with various themes from race and, race and social justice to reopening cultural institutions in Southeast London to Women Behind the Sound for March uh, Women's History, as well as the future of fine art and all sorts of other initiatives as well. So we continue those on a monthly basis and we're looking at programming a slate for the spring and 40% London in a similar vein is a consultancy that I'm starting with my friend and colleague, Mark James, which is helping businesses, creative businesses, reach their inclusion and diversity goals. So these are goals that they often set themselves. But as we know, these these goals are often difficult to reach in terms of employment and recruitment, as well as representing to our client, to their clients and to their audiences, their intentions when regarding diversity and inclusion. Uh, we call it the 40%, uh, 40% London because the capital is 40% Black, Asian, and minority, according to the last census. Actually, oh, I didn't know that. That's, that's very diverse. It's well, yeah. That's I think that's the interesting thing about it is that the city is it's very diverse. However, some mm-hmm. of these agencies that call London home, and most of which uh, work in urban apparel or sports or music and culture, often uh, their staff and their their work does not necessarily reflect the diversity of the communities in which they make money, in which they are marketing to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is 40% London. Okay. Okay. So I want you to take me through a salon. Yeah. So I remember years and years ago, we met in, in London and and you had mentioned that this was something you wanted to do. Like you wanted to bring people together. I've always known you to, we used to have salons at your house <laughs> in Brooklyn. So yeah. tell me more about what happens in the physical space when you have the physical space and how you go about connecting. Because being a connector is a skill. And so how do you go about doing that and how just walk us through a salon that's been one of your favorite or just how you structure it? Of course. Um, I think the Southeast Salon at its heart really matches well with your principle about having a borderless mindset. And it's really great to be in such amazing company as some of your previous guests who are doing work all over the world. The Southeast Salon is an opportunity for people from different backgrounds to come into a space and comfortably connect with people, other people who they might have a lot in common with or just a, a few things in common with. But in general, it is about making connections, but in a very soft serve kind of way and in a very intimate way. So one of the things that I always pride myself on before I started this was, you know, if I knew somebody who you know, needed a space, done some work here with the Big Lottery and a firm called Livity in Brixton with finding young people free space, working with different venues and studios and theaters for opening up space for young people 16 to 25. If I knew somebody that needed a space, 
I can make that phone call and make a connection and sort of put those two people together and let them work out the details. It's almost a safe way of sort of putting the responsibility in those two entities' hands, but making a connection that's valuable and giving a little bit of context to each person so that they have a, a substantial conversation going forward. And I was always told that, that I should formalize this, that I should get people together, but I was always put off by networking events. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. You know, the words of, of a colleague and friend of mine, Ashanti, she would, she comes from a marketing background. She's a black woman. She's from Southeast London, but she would go to these events and often feel like she was overlooked. So to jump forward, when the first time she came to one of my salons, she said, not only did I feel welcomed by you when I walked in the room, because I knew what to expect, everybody else that I met in this room received me in the same way, which is a refreshing experience, mm-hmm. uh, really respecting all the different facets of her personality and her skill set. And so I said, so I just started this in a way where I would literally bring people together in a space, preferably a space that was new, new to Southeast London or a space that a lot of people in my audience didn't really necessarily know, uh, bringing people together from different parts of Southeast London in an effort to connect to these different neighborhoods, which as you know, Florence, Peckham is, is very geographically close to Catford, but the communities are not necessarily don't necessarily intersect that often or Camberwell and Greenwich or, you know, these communities are mm-hmm. close geographically, but not close uh, in a lot of ways, a lot of other ways. So bringing people together from different communities, different disciplines. And I would literally walk up to somebody and say, hey, Flo, you need to meet Marva, who's another name that we know. Um, you both have uh, jazz in common or you both love a good, good table turn. You both listen to Rich Medina. And you know, disappear into the mix and come back an hour later and there would be an amazing conversation there based on that one thing, but also based on the other things that the two people would find in common. Sure. Um, and so I would pride myself on making those connections and those early salons really reflected that. The best one we ever had was at a place called Gaff, which is a cafe in Deptford. My friend Rebecca Molina, uh, who created a network called Shapes Lewisham, who also opened this cafe, last about almost a year ago, uh, in January of last year, said, not only can I help you by providing a space for your next salon, but I can uh, we can work out a bit of some resources to sponsor it on behalf of the Lotion Creative Enterprise Zone, for which she is working, you know, she's working with this network in Lewisham to highlight creative businesses, creative entrepreneurs, and open up space and opportunity to creative entrepreneurs. So she had some resources to support that. And so we had representatives of the council come down and speak about opportunities that exist. We had uh, some live art by a local artist named Damien. We had a storyteller, Chenier, come and tell some great stories. And we had some wonderful food from Soul Delicious, which is based in Southeast London. And again, it was a wonderful opportunity to bring people together, don't know each other, but are very familiar to one another. And it was the first salon that I had where I didn't know most of the people in the room. So we had amazing food, amazing art, impromptu performances uh, by um, some groups and just some amazing connections made that night. And then I was riding that high when uh, when the pandemic hit and we took it online. And so, so, and so since we've been in lockdown, I've been doing a series of salons that are based on Zoom that are broadcast through uh, a software, a production software to go on to social media platforms. Wonderful. So we'll have, we'll definitely have um, the links to the salon and to all the, that in our show notes, we have really good show notes. So we'll be sure to add that. So we're speaking about Southeast London. 
But I want to understand why the where. So I know that you don't live in Southeast London. So tell us a little bit more about why the where. Like, how did you come to be living, working, and playing where you live? Yes. Well, I do live in Southeast London. I moved here 12 years ago. Oh, um, okay. Yes. But I, yeah, and I, to that, I just consider myself to be very lucky. Um, some good friends of ours, uh, my wife and I, Matt and Kenya, moved here shortly before us from New York. They live close by to where we live, and we sort of found a place to rent close to them because London is very large, as you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. it was an opportunity to be close to some people that we already knew. Um, And we've been able to stay and watch Southeast London grow. One of the things I will say about Southeast London that's quite exciting is that people always ask, what's the difference between, you know, say, Brooklyn and New York and London, or what's the difference between living in these two places? And I would describe Southeast London very similar to Brooklyn in a lot of ways in terms of the people, the landscape, the history. But I would say it's 10 years behind Brooklyn in terms of all of the changes. So if you have lived in Brooklyn- you mean for like that, the physical changes in terms the physical, or the, the movement of people changes? Both, both. Okay. And I preface that in the midst of that, I say I always differentiate between gentrification and regeneration. Um, mm-hmm. Gentrification, I think, is a is a word that we use to talk about something in a very negative light, change in a negative light. And I think that is so. However, one of the things about Southeast Salon and some of the work that I do is it's focused on positive regeneration because these changes are happening whether we like them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and in saying that, a lot of the things that I see happening in Southeast London right now, whether it's Peckham or Camberwell, Catford, Lewisham, Greenwich, I've seen happen in Brooklyn in 2002, 2003, 2004, up to, you know, 2009 when I left, you know, when you look at things that happened, you know, Atlantic and Flatbush, when you look at um, things that are happening in Gowanus or Fort Greene or Dumbo, where I've, I've spent a lot of time, many of those same things, as you said, both physical change and the movement of people into those areas where they otherwise did not consider those places destinations previously mm-hmm. are happening in Southeast London right now. And I, the last thing I'll say is the beautiful thing about it is there have been people living in those areas for generations that also were not considered part of the conversation until all of a sudden the artists move in. Those artists make a name for the space that wasn't on certain channels before. And then all of a sudden the developers and the real estate moguls come in and see the value in that. And they sort of sink their teeth in and all of a sudden the landscape's changed and you've got hot sauce and beer stores on every corner, or as I like to say, you know, sushi on Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> Big up uh, uh, Dean between Franklin and Gates. Uh, uh, Franklin and Bedford, sorry. So, yeah, um, I, I like to, I localize Southeast London because I feel lucky that we landed here, but I think a lot of the changes happening in Southeast London happened in other places that I've lived, including Five Points, including DC, including sure. Chattanooga, including Seattle. Um, yeah. The last thing I'll say is I think Southeast London is the last corner of the capital to sort of go through this change, whereas we Hackney has been so mm-hmm. shortage uh, right. all of these other places have previously gone through this change. Right, right, right. So living there and, and seeing that happening, how you are an advocate for the people, basically, how are you seeing the participation? Because you, you made the distinction between gentrification and regeneration. Mm-hmm. And so how are you in your work and in your and in your everyday experience seeing and encouraging the people who've been there to right. be seen? Right. 
Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's careful work. It's carefully executed work, which I by no means have mastered. But I think part of what I'm focused on is bringing people together in order to establish their own agency and exercise their own voice where they might not have been heard previously. Mm -hmm. So as an example, one of the things that I'm trying to do with the salon is to provide a platform for people who otherwise wouldn't have one to connect people on subjects that they're very much interested in, but are not familiar with one another, but also bring some voices to the table when it comes to regeneration that don't necessarily exist. Uh, you know, Lush, I live in an area where there is tremendous history. However, with a lot of the change happening, a lot of the regeneration, the gentrification happening, there are loads of people moving into this community who are not familiar with the New Cross fire or the Lewisham riots, or mm -hmm. the role that the Deptford docks, the Royal mm -hmm. docks in Deptford played in the international slave trade. They're not familiar with the fact that Lover's Rock was created and comes out of this area. Mm -hmm. um, they're not familiar with the people who live here who have been contributing for generations. And I think that's a lost opportunity. It's an opportunity that um, many individuals see as as positive people that work for the council the government people that run organizations see as as valuable but i think the principles of some of those organizations don't necessarily put into action the elevation of those voices sometimes um and i i, I do say sometimes and so that's sort of part of some of that work is to is to make sure that there are voices at each table as as communities change in order to usher in positive change Mm -hmm. uh, as these flats go up, I mean, I just had a conversation with somebody the other day about a development project close by. You know, they were focusing on the developer and this company that's coming in. And this company is, they're based in Hong Kong. They don't care about the community necessarily. Right. They're not right. paid. They care about making return on their investment. Exactly. However, there are people that work for the government. There are people that work in various organizations throughout the community that are have different areas of focus that who's, who might who just need to be sort of maybe shift their thinking a little bit so that they can make the business case and the moral case for the people who are a bit higher up in order for them to say, oh, well, maybe we should look at this in a different way. Um, maybe there is a business case for for preserving the history or putting up markers, you know, in this city, in this country, they've got blue plaques on buildings to say who lived there back in 1602. So I think that's that's part of it as well, is trying to elevate some of those voices to work in concert as opposed to just sort of being railing against this change as if it's as if uh, as if we, we can stop it or mm -hmm. as if uh, all change is bad. Yeah. Right. Right. Understood. You mentioned the Deptford docks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that one stands out in particular because I think there's some deep meaning there. And so Let's take that as a case, as a scenario, as a case study. Yes. So knowing what's going on there, how do you see your work, your interaction, everything that you've just talked about actually coalescing to establish something meaningful around those docs and give us some context of what the docs are? Yes. Yep. I'm treading lightly here because I'm on the verge of um, forming some relationships which are yep. quite meaningful around this this physical area. So Deptford is a piece of, is a neighborhood, is a community that sits between, if you could look at a map, between Greenwich and, say, Surrey Keys, or just around the bend 
across the river from Canary's Wharf and the financial district, if you will. Mm-hmm. It is in the borough of Lewisham. It is traditionally, historically, one of the busiest and formerly one of the one of the busiest ports and high streets in the capital going back centuries. It's an incredibly diverse community. It's a beautiful community. There's green space. There's lots of people. There's lots to do, lots of culture. So that's sort of the context of where it is and where it sits. In Deptford, right on the water, is the location of what was formerly the Royal Dockyard, which I believe, again, I'm trying to tread lightly here in terms of retelling the history that I'm also learning myself and all the people that are historically involved. However, there's a piece of land on the water that was formerly the Royal Docks back, dare I say, 17th century, maybe, you know, 16th century, let's say 1500s going through early 1700s, where they built ships and it was huge and it was hugely profit making. And these ships set sail and went all over the world, as you can imagine. There are also lots of stories and documentation of places around Deptford that also contributed to the international slave trade, that contributed to the outfitting of ships for the purpose of holding people Mm -hmm. for trading bodies, for going, for contributing in, in the triangle trade, going to Africa, making the trip over to the Caribbean and the Americas, and then back to uh, England. In fact, right now I'm reading a wonderful book called Blood and Sugar, which is a fictionalized story about Deptford. I Mm -hmm. recommend it wholeheartedly because it basically starts from the context that this industry was legal and supported and embraced, and it is how England became so rich, which is part of the point that I'm trying to make in this work. So to jump forward... For the better part of the last half century, this, you know, mid-century, mid-20th century, this land was uh, used, you know, the docks have dried up. They've filled in all these little dry docks and all these places, and it's been used for different industries. For the better part of the last half of the, you know, 20th century, it was a, it was a brown site. Mm-hmm. Um, again, treading lightly. Some developers got hold of the space, and ever since I've lived here and longer, let's say 20 years, this has been a site that is locked away. You can sort of peek through the fence, I'd say like 14 acres of brown space right on the water. And it literally disrupts a walkway that goes all the way from Greenwich and even further east on the Thames, all the way around to the South Bank, this beautiful walk that you can walk along the water and look at the lights on the river. You have to stop in Deptford and walk around this site in order to catch the river on the other side. The site is known as Convoy's Wharf. Mm -hmm. There are dozens and dozens of people and organizations that have been, dare I say, heavily involved in the maintaining and fighting against the store, the the change that is happening in this site. And there are developers that have held on to this site for years to turn it into flats, uh, blocks Mm -hmm. of flats, towers of apartments. Luxury uh, housing. Luxury housing, as you Mm -hmm. see all over all of the cities, all over the waterfront, basically, all mm-hmm. over the waterfront, and it is, I think, the last, the last site along the Thames that exists that's about to get this treatment, for lack of a better term, the royal treatment. Right. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I live in Deptford. Sorry, I live in Lewisham, just up the hill from Deptford. I've lived here for twelve years. I've worked in Deptford. I know people that live there, work there. I'm very much connected to the area, very much connected to the people in the area. And I exist in between all these different organizations and people that do similar work. 
in various forms from the government and the council to organizations that work with young people to you know schools and museums and theater companies and people that uh, run their own design firms goldsmiths university and i'm having this conversation this same conversation with dozens and dozens of people over the last couple of years about the changes that are happening at the same time the planning process for this site are just sort of going through the very slow process of getting to the point where they're starting to to dig and build these flats. At present, they have achieved planning permission for many parts of the project. They're still going through uh, planning permissions for as many parts of the project, but there are all sorts of provisions that they're required to do as they build, and that will end up a part of the final build. And as I continue, I just wanted to say, if you walk around Deptford along the water, you will see physical markers to Sir Walter Raleigh, to Francis Drake, to the Royal Docks, to mm-hmm. all of these individuals who are very much a part of the, the uh, rural Britannia, the maritime tradition of this country and are you know, given their due as fathers of industry. All men, obviously, made their living as circumventing the globe and you know, building ships, being knighted by the king and all of these stories. But there's nothing to tell the story of what these ships were doing, how they made their money, how they contributed in this at- absolutely atrocious piece of the original sin you know so i think there's something missing here in short as they develop this site as people move into this community i think we are missing an opportunity to not only tell the story but to provide opportunities for the people in the community to contribute to the development of the site Mm -hmm. i think that there's not only a moral case but there's a business case to tell the story this is proven Time and time again, when you look at when you look at video games, when you look at films, we're not afraid to tell the story of the underdog in any other scenario except when it comes to people from the diaspora. We're right. not afraid to tell the story of Avatar. We love Avatar. $57 million to make this movie about the underdog and the unsung hero and how this place was totally uprooted and totally destroyed for the purpose of progress. Yet we can't tell the story about how England became so rich and and cultured and profitable. We can't tell the story about the, the underbelly, literally, of the maritime tradition in this country. And as this site develops, we're missing an opportunity to do that. And, you know, one example is uh, there's a, a black man who came to this country as a slave. His name was Equiano. He landed in Deptford and later became a statesman who contributed to making policy. So he arrived at this site as a slave and later became an, an established figure. If you want to talk about the positivity, you know, it's not just necessarily about the international slave trade. It's about all of the other stories that come out of the diaspora that are come in and out of this site, have come in and out of the site, or that this site particularly represents, that mm-hmm. need to be told. Sure. And to take it away from a strictly uh, ethnic or racial conversation, although I think that's where I come from in terms of my angle, especially in the in the shadow of the Windrush scandal, uh, mm-hmm. hostile environment coming out of the... Um, the Tory government, 10 years of austerity of Tory mm-hmm. governments, ripping apart youth clubs and services for the for people, people of color, also for poor people in this country. You look at all the people who are living in this part of the city right now, whose descendants are not necessarily from the diaspora, but were a part of this international slave trade as well. You look at people who were poor, who might have ended up working for working in the slave trade on a ship and 
living and working first, you know, at close range with this international slave trade and bringing that trauma back and the years and generations later, how that historical memory sort of seeps down. So mm -hmm. I guess all that to say, there is a tremendous opportunity here as this site develops to tell the story, to make use of the space as it's being developed, to put up permanent markers about what took place there, about providing opportunities for the local community to get involved and uh, get jobs and bring in some some elements of, of culture and And arts. diverse culture at that, yeah. 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 Not to mention, yeah. the last thing I'll say is we're coming up on 2022 is going to be the Lewisham Borough of Culture. So there's a tremendous opportunity there if we mm. choose to take it. Sure. It's a year and a half away. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So speaking of local and and um, things that are in the, the sense of being on the ground, this is where I want to ask you my global speak question. So okay. I want to hear, we want to hear what you hear. So I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as global speak. Thank you for the question. I heard what other folks on your show provided as answers. And I will say, I think mine are probably just as rich, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, drastically different, but hopefully mm -hmm. some of the audience members will get them. I got two. Okay. First is y'all. Y'all. Okay. It's a word that I can, I cannot give up. It's a word I've been using all my life. And I think, uh, you know, sometimes I'll use the word y'all in, in speaking and text messages and emails and people take issue with like, oh, that, you know, that's an improper word or what do you, you know, that's inappropriate or it doesn't really fit. And I'm like, actually, no, I think it fits perfectly with what I'm trying to say um, right. in, in that particular instance. But so that's one. And that obviously comes from the States. That comes from the United States. And the other mm -hmm. word that I would add to that is in it. In it. I -N -N -I -P, um, yeah. Which I think is definitely a London specific word, but it, it basically is. means also, or it could come in many, many forms. It could just be a, a one word response to something profound or it could be uh, the exclamation point at the end of a sentence. Right. It's like, make a point. yeah, yeah, in yeah. It, I mean, you know, somebody says, oh, you know, um, Joe Biden was just elected president, president, but we want to hold him to task. We want to not let him rest on his laurels, isn't it? Right. <laughs> right. Might just say, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know? Okay. It's like, um, it's kind of like word. Word, word. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I, yeah I, I hear in it all the time. Yeah. Like in it. Go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, those are good ones. So y'all in, in it, okay. And I just want to say to the people of Chattanooga and the people of Southeast <laughs> London, please don't butcher me for saying those were two words wrong. But, you know, <laughs> you know, Chattanooga didn't get me, Southeast London didn't get me. I talk how I talk, so. Sure, yeah. we're all entitled to our accents. That's there the truth, go. we're entitled to our accents. Okay, so, you know, we've spoken about your, um, your entrepreneurial endeavors, but you also have another life with um, the art space. So, Tell us more about the technical aspects of your work at the Migration Museum and the um, Peckham platform. Of course. The Migration Museum is a wonderful project that's been around for over seven years as just that, as a project doing programs in schools mm -hmm. and community-based organizations, highlighting the stories of people coming in and out of England, Britain. They ambitiously took over a large commercial unit in a local mall in Lewisham in February of this year, 2020, just mm -hmm. before the lockdown. Um, and I took on the role of operations manager there just in time for the lockdown. But it's an amazing opportunity to take over a space and bring people to these stories, if you will. So mm -hmm. 
the exhibits encompass people's stories. They're archival-based materials that have been donated to the museum, as well as lots of research that goes into telling different stories. And at the moment, we've got an exhibit that is not necessarily open on a regular basis called Room to Breathe, which is you walk into a physical space that inhabits all sorts of stories of people coming into the country. So there's a bedroom that's set up and you can sort of open drawers and sit in chairs and listen to stories mm. that have been recorded in video monitors and things like that. You okay. walk into a kitchen with a place setting and you can sort of sit down and hear different stories from told from all over the world, from Eastern Europe to Southeast Asia to uh, Africa to the Caribbean of how people cook and businesses that they started and different recipes. And it's very wow. interactive. That's a really good idea. It's, yeah. it's really great. And then a classroom and a barbershop which are also very interactive. So as we reopened this fall um, in October, before closing again, thanks to mm-hmm. our uh, wonderful second government, wave. Yeah. second wave, um, we opened an exhibit called Departures, which is all about different people leaving the country to go to various yeah. parts of the world for various reasons. Um, mm-hmm. And it goes back, I think it goes back 400 years in terms of different stories of people leaving. Oh, wow. Um, so not only coming but going, and mm-hmm. uh, it's very. These exhibits are very interactive, which is another consideration for us as we open and close the museum with these different waves and lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And we're about to open up again on Thursday, so we'll be open oh, okay. uh, Thursday through Sunday until we uh, get ordered to close again. So that's an interesting. Like, so you are in an art space, and the arts community obviously has been hard hit by the virus. How are you preparing the space? Like what kind of protocols, like how have you actually been in the, the, you know, regulatory side of how do we open and stay open and how do we make sure feel safe? That's a very good question. I think a lot of these, a lot of these best practices are just sort of being written as we speak. And over the Mm -hmm. last few months as communities have reopened and it was a tremendous undertaking to decide how to reopen the numbers that we would accept, especially Mm -hmm. considering we are not, we don't have a bricks and mortar space. We're literally taking over Mm -hmm. a space that is a large retail unit in a large shopping center, which also Mm -hmm. has its own rules and regulations. So I remember back over the summer, we had a conversation, we were were speaking quite regularly, and we had a conversation when the government announced that cultural institutions could reopen. We had a conversation amongst our our staff to talk about what we could do and, and what our timing would be. And, you know, the Tate the British Museum, all these larger organizations were definitely prepared to open because they've got large budgets, they've got huge endowments and buildings that they've had, they've been living in for years. So they could sort of, obviously it's not an easy undertaking, but they were. it was a lot easier for yeah, these large organizations yeah. to, to do that work and determine what they would do about PPE, what they would do about hand sanitizer stations mm-hmm. and staffing concerns and keeping their staff safe, keeping the public safe and messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided to hold off on reopening until the fall, not only to take everything into consideration and to better prepare ourselves, but also to coincide with the opening of this exhibit, Departures. So we knew that the exhibit was slated open over the summer. We obviously pushed that back. So we sort of coincided the opening of this exhibit, which would be, which was an exciting launch to you know, open the museum back up. And that also mm-hmm. coincided, uh, I think about a month, maybe two months after the shopping center itself reopened. So obviously okay. the government said, we want you to go shopping first before they decided to make all these right. other considerations because we've got to keep the economy open as, as we've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did, back to the question, we did consider 
capacity issues, one-way systems, uh, signage, um, mm-hmm. masks for staff, staffing and volunteer concerns. With the volunteers is a heavy concern because obviously we we're, we exist in a very diverse neighborhood community. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the volunteers traditionally in our spaces have been students. They've been communities that have been hardest hit by the virus, uh, yeah. generally speaking. And so we didn't necessarily want to invite our volunteers back in, of which we've got many, and we're excited to be uh, supported by a large contingent of volunteers. We didn't want to just invite people back in. We wanted to make sure that they felt safe. So we did a survey to figure out what they needed from us. We had several conversations as staff to decide how we would be front and center at the museum. That was also a concern of mine, being operations manager and being front and center. We've got a a lovely bookshop at the front of the museum, which is obviously heavily- uh, A lot of traffic. Yeah, lots of traffic coming in. A lot of touchy, touchy. Mm -hmm. A lot of, so we we scaled that back a bit, quite a bit, um, in terms of how people were interacting with the different pieces. We had to close Room to Breathe, which is a very interactive, touchy, touchy Mm -hmm. exhibit, interactive exhibit. Um, And we had to look at how departures opens up in a way where things are not necessarily as tactile as as we had wanted them to be, but still interactive with a lot of audio visuals and things like that. And Mm -hmm. physically, we just put hand sanitizer pumps everywhere. There's a track and trace system that all businesses contribute to. Mm -hmm. And that's been a bit contentious. I think people were required to track and trace. We let people know. So we're trying to adhere to those rules as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that I pride myself on, anybody that comes to that door, some people come in and say, oh my God, I'm in tears because this, you're telling my grandmother's story. Some people come in and they say, what is this, what is this about? Immigration is about Windrush. It's about this. It's about that. Some people come in and say, there's, there's not enough of this particular story. Mm. And so with all of these different scenarios, we're doing our best to, to make sure that it's a yes and, make sure that people are coming back and returning. Mm-hmm. So you know, if people come in and they're interacting with us in a way that is not considerate for other people, we try to address that. If people mm-hmm. kind of turn back around because they can't adhere to our policies or they refuse, we remind them that we're online and that we'll be here throughout the next spring for as long as we right. can. And also, the last thing I'll say is we've got a tremendous exhibit called Heart of the Nation online at migrationmuseum.org that is all about the NHS and the fact that mm-hmm. uh, immigrants have played a considerable role in the development of the NHS here in this country. So those Absolutely. online programs have continued throughout the lockdown. That was a tremendous exhibit that launched over at the end of the summer. Um, nice. So, yeah. Nice. And so from a revenue perspective, you're surviving. Have you had to, you mentioned the endowments that these large organizations have. Does the museum have a large endowment? How are you actually financially coping? We're funded primarily through grants. We've got okay. an Arts Council grant as well as donations. So, okay. and we've got this space for free through the landlord for the shopping center. And we're constantly looking for future space, permanent space. And we've got a great board of trustees as well as advisors who help us along the way. Um, mm-hmm. And a very small staff that's been working with the museum. Most of us have been working with the museum for quite some time. So okay. no large endowments all grants and donations and the, the the trustees and the senior staff are working quite diligently and vigilantly to plan for the future. Nice. Nice. So not dire, but still working. Still working. Definitely. Um, and I will say it's amazing to be in a place like Lewisham Shopping Center, because as you can imagine, when you stand at the front of this museum, mm-hmm. your people are walking by shopping, you know, as uh, we had safeguarding training at the very beginning, and our trainer basically said, everything that's out there is going to come in here. 
both positive, negative, and everything in between. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. experience to have people come in from school children after three who were like, what's this, you know, to people who have heard about us online or excited that we're there to people who might have some contentious things to say about their own story because migration and immigration sparks a lot of interesting conversation. But it's it's all positive as far as I'm concerned in terms of the interaction that we're getting. Sure. That sounds like a great experience doing that kind of work. So speaking of mindsets, this is where I like to ask my guests what their favorite or innovative mindset hack is. So this is one that you can imagine or one that you know of. Interesting. I think I'm going to steal from... Tara, because, or not Steele, but one of your previous guests. Yes. When I go into scenarios, like meetings, especially with some of these things that are, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, trying to develop something that, you know, people never heard of before, trying to, I guess not necessarily a a film, but I sort of envision it like a film, Mm. is trying to, trying to understand how every individual, how this, how I play, how I'm playing out this role. In this mm-hmm. particular scenario, I guess another way to look at it is when planning events, I try to appreciate how every individual who's going to interact with that experience comes out of it, what they're putting into it, what they're getting out of it, from the folks who are making the food to the people that are making the music to the people who are in the audience who are just coming to it cold and never heard of it, and trying to try and understand how each person, each player is experiencing this one experience so that as I go into that, whether it's a meeting or an event or just a day's work at the museum, trying to see things through other people's shoes, other people's experiences, so that my experience and my output can be thoughtful and not so one-sided. I think that mm-hmm. we have a tendency to, to only see things from our own perspective, which sometimes prevents us from having a more fulfilling experience because we're dealing with people who come at it from a different angle or a different set of uh, baggage or, you know, experiences. Right. Um, so right. I guess that, that would be the mindset is trying to think of it from a 360 perspective or sure. as a film, you know, my role as a, amongst other players in a film, in a play. Sure. Kind of Do you find that to be a little bit more challenging in the moment? Because I, I can like the, the visualization and the planning of it ahead of time, obviously very effective. And I think it probably bodes well actually getting into it. But then in the moment when you are not under pressure, but you're living it real time, do you find it as easy or as effective to kind of project yourself out of yourself to be able to then, you know, bring it all together for the outcome that you may have envisioned before? I think so. I think it is difficult. But one of the things that I that comes from moving around so much is being used to making mistakes mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. being new and constantly introducing myself and um, being vulnerable in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's something that I'm not afraid to, to do. I'm not afraid to say the wrong thing. I'm not afraid to stumble over someone's name or make a mistake. Yeah. But I think, yeah. And I think that's a mindset hack in itself because I think there's so much fear about making mistakes that people just yes. are frozen and it doesn't yeah. happen. So I think you've, you've given us two. You've got the movie, like play it out and, you know, be fearless about mistakes. Like mistakes are part of, they are part of nature. You know, Definitely. we have mistakes every here, everywhere. Jason, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you Thank so you much. We much. didn't get to talk about Petcom platform, but we will. 
like, well, you know, I definitely want to have you back, talk about even our own types of salons here. I want to bring guests back to kind of riff on different topics and solutionscape. I've been saying that for a long time, but I'm getting to you are episode, no, you're episode 51. I'm coming up on my one year anniversary for the podcast. Happy so anniversary. Good things happening, folks. We're going to have some salons. We're going to have some work discussions, obviously more inspiring guests as well. So Jason, before we go, let me ask you a question that gets a little bit more into Jason, the homebody, potentially. Okay. Okay. Um, tell us what you're listening to these days. Oh man, I saw that one coming as well. Listen, <laughs> in terms of music, I mean, I could listen to Earth, Wind & Fire and Stevie Wonder and Otis all Redding day. and Rita Franklin, you know, yeah. all Simon all day. However, the one thing I will say is there are people out there doing a much better job of sharing music than I, who I listen to. And I just wanted to mention three. One is mm-hmm. Charlie Dark, who has Rundem Radio, which is Saturdays on rundemradio.com. Okay. Uh, has an amazing show. He's taken over space in Elephant and Castle. Also another right. amazing regeneration story. Charlie Dark uh, is an amazing character from mm-hmm. uh, who developed Rundem Crew. Second is Amir Abdullah, who has 180 Proof, which is a and Strata Records. I'm Amir, um, yeah. Amir, know him from University of Colorado and from Brooklyn. And yeah. the last is Emma Warren, who is who wrote a book called Make Some Space. She's also along with Amir and Charlie on Worldwide FM on a regular basis, producing shows. Those three individuals for me are tastemakers. Uh, definitely amazing people in their own right, bringing people together, spreading positivity, but also amazing tastes in music from all over the world. So I would say anytime there's a chance to listen to those three on the radio or sets on Mixcloud or some of these other platforms, Mm -hmm. other platforms are available. Um, (laughs) I I tend to catch them because I know I'm going to learn something new and get some vibes. Nice. Hooray for the spin doctors. (laughs) Yes, 100%. The song, Last Night I DJ Saved My Life, has saved my life so many times because I really, I'm a dance girl. And I think the DJs are like so underrated and so underappreciated. They're getting better, but, you know, there's this whole celebrity DJ thing that kind of is, I have my ideas about that. But, you know, DJs, they're all of it. Although I think D Nice D Nice needs to get an award for 2020. I think he did something yeah. real special at the beginning of the lockdown. Absolutely. That's what I'm I hear saying. You in terms of saved DJs, my but... life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love exactly. it. So oh, those are great. So obviously, again, folks, great rich show notes, a lot to learn from this episode. So before we go, any last words to share with our listeners? I would just say, you know, this old phrase, um, think globally, act locally, support your local community especially in these trying times, stay safe. Mm -hmm. And if you have a chance to get out and see something new in your own local community and tell that story and make a connection, please take that opportunity. And if you find yourself in Southeast London, come see us. That's for sure. I'll come see you next time I'm around. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. It's good to talk to you, Florence. Thank you so much, Jason. So, Local citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. You can catch us at www.glocalcitizenspod.com, Spotify, Amazon, Stitcher, you name it. You can find us there. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you find your podcasts, you can find us. So subscribe, share, tell a friend, leave a comment, recommend a guest, anything. So until next time, bye for now. Bye.